massive car bomb exploded outside of a large federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, shattering that building, killing children, killing federal employees, military men, and civilians. The chaos in downtown Oklahoma City did indeed resemble Beirut after what police believed to be a 1,200-pound car bomb ripped through the nine-story federal building shortly after 9 o'clock this morning. If it seemed like war... It's like a garbage pile. It's, just, it's unbelievable. I found myself this morning looking back at things and thinking of things that I didn't really think about during the... During the thing, and, and tears still come to my eyes. Seemed like war. They are saying there's an eight-foot crater, and several, a uh, couple of cars at least, have been joined by the heat and the force of the explosion. In Lebanon, a spokesman for the Iranian-backed Hezbollah said, "We are only interested in liberating our land from the Israeli occupation. We have no relation with the explosion inside the United States." There you see the farmhouse right now. Uh, this is where two individuals, we believe two, maybe more, uh, were being sought. Seemed like war. That's a farmhouse said to be owned by two brothers with possible links to the bombing. They are identified as James Douglas Nichols and Terry Lynn Nichols. Law enforcement sources say those two men and McVeigh were expelled from a paramilitary group for being too radical. Officials are refusing to speculate on what motive any of these suspects might have. He told me earlier this evening, having to do with experiments in bomb-making and a passionate anger against the federal government for its actions against the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas two years back, is circumstantial but telling. One suspect, according to our sources, is in custody now. 27-year-old Tim McVeigh, the crew cut John Doe number one in the FBI sketch, had been stopped for speeding in this Mercury Marquee. 60 miles north of Oklahoma City, about 90 minutes after the bombing. Reno ended at a wider conspiracy. I remind everyone that John Doe number two remains at large. He should be considered armed and extremely dangerous. There is a strong likelihood that other persons are involved in this tragedy as well. Seemed like war. Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I am your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our sixth look at the Oklahoma City bombing. Now, before we get into the story this week, as always, I have the normal show notes and announcements. If you would like to follow me anywhere on social media, just search for either Ian Totten author the Deathcast, or Corpse Creek Publishing. If you're interested in signing up for the show's mailing list, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and click on the sign-up button that comes up when you go onto the home page. While you're there, if you want to drop me a line, you have questions or suggest a story, you just want to let me know how you think I'm doing, just go to the Contact Us page and shoot me a line. If you'd like to help support this show, there's a couple of ways you can do that. First and foremost, you can go to your favorite podcast app, click on the subscribe button, and leave a five-star review, as well as share the show on social media. All of these things do help the show to get out to more people. 
You can also become a Patreon member at tinyurl.com backslash Patreon for as little as $2 a month. You can get access to exclusive content. There's currently one episode up there. There are more coming. Lastly, you can go to corpsecreekpublishing.com and click on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes. Uh, Every amount helps. And I know it's the Christmas season. If you're looking for a Christmas gift for that special someone, that reader in your life, head on over to tinyurl.com backslash totten hyphen books. That'll take you to my Amazon author page. I have six novels out. My best-selling series, the Blood God Trilogy. You can also find the Collier's Crossing books. That would be the House of Silver Doors and my newest release, Maggie as well as my best-selling crime fiction novel, The Throwaway Girls of Olympia. Again, that's tinyurl.com backslash totten hyphen books. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. Last week we discussed how McVeigh, in the time after getting out of the army, worked at a security company in upstate New York, and how he really began to amp up his white supremacist uh, rhetoric, as well as the fact that McVeigh was gonna, decided eventually he's going to leave the area. We also discussed the various conspiracy theories out there about McVeigh and his possible connections to the intelligence services. One of the operations that was in effect during this period of time was known as PATCON, which basically was written orders for the FBI to infiltrate both the white supremacist, the patriot, and the militia movements within the United States. They did this through having a number of different assets spread throughout the country, which would infiltrate these organizations and engage with them According to an article that was released in 2011, FBI documents which were released that same year state that in the aftermath of Ruby Ridge, operatives and assets for PatCon were instructed to engage in provocateur activities and were also instructed that they should make it known that they were quote-unquote willing to commit violence while advocating violent overthrow of the U.S. government. The reason that that bit of information feeds into the conspiracy theory side of things as it concerns the Oklahoma City bombing is, if you'll remember from past weeks, we talked about the fact that McVeigh gave contradictory statements 
saying that he had been a member of the intelligence community and that he had been instructed to infiltrate these organizations. You also remember, too, that I talked about there's a train of thought that believes that the Oklahoma City bombing may either have been an intentional bombing that was allowed to have happened in order to give the United States government the needed public example to really go after these organizations. They needed something to prove to the public that these organizations were evil, were out of control, and posed a dangerous threat to society. This train of thought states that the Oklahoma City bombing was just exactly that, and that in letting this happen, or in fact even orchestrating this, they got exactly what they needed. They were able to get the civilian population on their side. The other train of thought that kind of travels next to this one is the possibility that the bombing was known about in advance. Now, there is some evidence concerning this that we'll get into at a later date. But basically, this one reads that McVeigh was told to infiltrate these groups to help set this thing up with the idea that the federal government was going to swoop in and bust these guys. Unfortunately, things got away from them, whether that was because McVeigh went off their radar or because things moved too fast for these federal agencies to be able to react. And this eventually led to the actual bombing taking place. And because this would mean that the agencies involved, as well as the federal government, would have egg on their face. They very quickly tried, convicted, and then executed McVeigh before any of this information could be made public or could enter you know, the public discourse. Touching briefly again on the whole PatCon undercover operation, agents were put to great pains to try and prove to these individuals that they were infiltrating, that they were not, in fact, government agents. This was because they were fairly heavy-handed in their whole anti-government rhetoric. How does this tie into McVeigh? Well, McVeigh is known to have interacted with a number of these individuals that was being targeted by PatCon, but also to have had interactions with individuals who were tied to PatCon, be they agents or assets. And McVeigh did this by going to various gun shows, selling whatever it was that he had to sell, but also he did a lot of networking while he was at these shows. He found a lot of individuals who had similar political ideologies as he did and through this you know they networked with one another and as you're going to see when we start getting into groups like war which was the white Aryan resistance you know they really worked in concert with one another towards their various goals 
one of the places that McVeigh is known to have gone was to Kingman, Arizona, where a friend of his from the service, Michael Fortier, was living. There are different accounts out there concerning Fortier. It's some state that he was a heavy drug user, others that he was in fact producing and selling methamphetamine. Some accounts even state that McVeigh tried both marijuana and methamphetamine while he was in Arizona with Fortier. There's all kinds of stories out there about how McVeigh and his cohort Fortier were involved in some kind of government experiment while they were out in Arizona. I don't know the validity of any of that. What is known, however, is that while he was in Arizona in this Kingsman area, McVeigh came into contact with a chemist by the name of Stephen Garrett Colburn. Colburn is, by all indications, a fairly brilliant chemist. It's known that he divided his time between Cedar sinai Hospital in Beverly Hills and living in a trailer in Arizona. It's also been stated that he was cooking crystal meth while he was in Arizona. It has been said that Colburn had connections with various Arizona Patriot groups, as supposedly did Michael Fortier, but that these groups were really anti-tax organizations. They weren't the type of groups that, you know, were out there trying to overthrow the federal government. Colburn was said to have traveled on numerous occasions out into the deserts of Arizona for target practice, while also visiting various caves that were situated out there, which, according to these particular individuals, stretch from Arizona into California, and within them you can find survival manuals as well as materials to help you remain off the grid. Reason why Colburn is important is because McVeigh is known to have gone out into the desert for various paramilitary reasons during his stay in Arizona. Now, we're jumping a little bit ahead here, and that's just because I want to cover, cover Colburn before we move on. In July of 1994, Colburn was pulled over about a half hour from Los Angeles. According to the officer who pulled him over, Colburn was acting belligerently, and his vehicle was searched. At this time, they found an assault weapon as well as additional firearms in the vehicle, silencer, some brass knuckles, as well as tools for converting semi-automatic weaponry into automatic weaponry. There were various other things found in there as well as 
a videotape showing a 50 caliber machine gun being assembled while Colburn gave instructions on how to assemble it, as well as a receipt from a storage facility in Bullhead, Arizona, which was dated to June of 1994. This is important in that it is known that McVeigh was in Bullhead and Kingsman, Arizona in June of 1994. Colburn ends up getting arraigned and released on bail with a court date being given after which time he flees the area. Because of this, the ATF got involved and was searching for Colburn. He ended up mailing a resignation letter to the DNA lab that he worked on, as well as a letter to his girlfriend where he stated that he wanted to avenge Waco. Just prior to the bombing in 95, U.S. Marshals went to Kingman looking for Colburn and were unable to find him. What's notable from this, though, is that they found out that Colburn had a post office box there, and surprisingly, this was the same post office that Timothy McVeigh, as well as a number of other individuals who are of some prominence within the white power movement, had mailboxes there as well. But it was also discovered that Colburn was one of only two people allowed to pick up mail for Timothy McVeigh, the other being Michael Fortier. So, obviously, this guy ends up getting arrested, and he was questioned heavily concerning any possible involvement in the Oklahoma City bombing. One of the reasons for this was they found a truck with ammonium nitrate in the back of a truck next to his trailer. Eventually, he was found in Oatman, Arizona, where he was working as a dishwasher. And it was learned that during the period of time that the bombing took place, Colburn took off from work stating that his father had just had a stroke and they needed to attend to him. He did not return until the weekend after the bombing happened. So he's in custody and he ends up signing a letter written by the U.S. Attorney General's office, which basically told how he believed in the New World Order and that it was an organization of various powerful individuals looking to both control the world, take Americans' guns, and put microchips in their hands in order to control them. When he got arrested, he decided he needed to go on the run. And going on the run, he used his contacts from gun show and white supremacist organizations based around Kinman to move around. At first, he was put in contact with the militia of Montana, which was run by a man by the name of John Trockman who, it should be noted, was an FBI informant. Through Trockman, Colburn was put in 
contact with a number of various uh, white supremacist organizations. Now, according to Aberration in the Heartland of the Real, The Many Lives of Timmy McVeigh, it's suspected that one of these organizations was Aryan Nations, who you've heard me talk about. They were the largest white nationalist organization in the United States. They were heavily influential within the movement. They were also heavily compromised by both the ATF and the FBI. From there, he was put into contact with another organization which was based in the Ozark Mountains. Again, according to the book, this was most likely Elm City, which we're going to be talking about next episode. We're probably not going to get into them today. Through them, he learned of an Arkansas gun dealer by the name of Roger Moore. No, not the 007 Roger Moore, who, along with his girlfriend Karen Anderson, ran a mail-order gun and ammunition business. As an aside, Moore was a heavily protected government witness and informant. Now, according to Colburn, he was put in contact with a man by the name of Tuttle in Kingman, Arizona. Apparently, he got freaked out because Tuttle left a letter nailed to a utility pole in California, and it was at this point that Colburn went to ground in a old abandoned mine. The long and the short of all this is that the government began looking into all of these things that he had stated, only to find out that Colburn had known and associated with most of these individuals for at least two years prior to when he said he actually met them, and was in fact a regular customer, and it seems almost a confederate of these individuals. What is beyond a shadow of a doubt, though, is that Colburn did in fact know McVeigh, and had in fact shared a trailer with him in Oatman, which was found to have been a meth lab. Why is all of this important? Well, because McVeigh had to have been financing his wanderings on the road somehow. It's not possible for him to have traveled as extensively as he did, stayed in hotels, done all the things that he did without some form of income, because he certainly wasn't making that kind of income from his sales on the gun show circuit. Enter this guy down in Arizona, they're cooking meth. It's highly probable that McVeigh used his portion of the sales to live off of as well as finance what is going to be the Oklahoma City bombing. Why is Colburn important? Some have speculated he may have been one of the John Doe's who was seen on the day of the bombing itself, especially when you consider the fact that he knew both McVeigh and Fortier, there's a very good possibility that he knew Terry Nichols, and remember, he's also a chemist. He would be able to figure out how to build a bomb 
I'm not saying McVeigh was stupid. The records all indicate he was anything but. But the type of fertilizer bomb that they built takes some know-how. They had to have had somebody else involved in this. So it's a very good possibility that that somebody else was Colbert. I'm not saying he was that individual. I'm saying it's a possibility. Despite this, though, the FBI decided that there was no way Colburn was the John Doe. And this came to be a recurring theme throughout both the trial of McVeigh and the trial of Terry Nichols. There were a number of individuals who the federal government knew to have been, at worst, associates, at best, co-conspirators of the two men who were eventually continued. The government never turned this information over to the fence teams, and it was a continuing argument down throughout the years as to why hadn't they turned over this information and what is in that information which might be of import to both men's convictions and trials. Going over my notes, there's one brief little thing I'm going to touch on, and I mean brief. McVeigh's known to have gone to the area around Area 51 for a spell. A lot of white supremacists did this. Some state that they did this so that they could meet plot and plan under the guise of being one of the quote-unquote loonies who camp out in the wilderness outside of Area 51 in the hopes of seeing a alien or a UFO. I mention this briefly because, well, the Nazis kind of believed in UFOs. Uh, there's a lot of evidence and research that has gone into that, and I am not going to dive into all of that. But it's possible that the individuals in these organizations went there with the same idea of, you know, hey, you know, the government's got aliens, alien technology, we need that to help build our master race or whatever. But I one of those little side notes, like I said, just covering it briefly in an attempt to be complete. Really, though, that information is only important in that since the years after his release, Stephen Colburn has become something of a celebrity in the UFO alien watchers organizations based largely to an appearance he made on Coast to Coast AM. This was in 2010. Now we are going to get back onto track as to what McVeigh did after leaving Buffalo. Exactly, we're going to go through this quick because it's important stuff, but I don't want to get bogged down. This isn't going to be a 14-part series like I did on Jimmy Saville. What I'm doing here is really attempting to explain who this individual was, his movements, and if you want more information, I can give you links to places you can go to look this stuff up. Remember, just prior to leaving Buffalo in late 92, McVeigh told 
various individuals that he might be labeled as a white supremacist, a white nationalist, and be locked up at some day in the near future. If you believe the conspiracy theories, that is a possibility that he knew that he was going to get burned by his government handlers. If you don't believe the conspiracy theories, then that would lead us to the conclusion that as early as late 1992, McVeigh already had it in his mind that he was going to do something big as a member of the white resistance in America. We are going to take a very quick break right here, after which we will come back to the story of McVeigh and what happened after leaving Buffalo. Small business owners, authors, podcasters, are you trying to reach a larger audience with your products and services? Advertising on the DeathCast is an easy and affordable way to reach your goals. Contact me at ian at corpsecreekpublishing.com and I'm going to give you the best rates in the business. My show is heard by thousands of people monthly all over the world. And once your ad goes into circulation, it stays there forever. You'll get inserted into shows as they're released, but you'll also get a dedicated episode that is nothing but your ad read, which will go out on my main feed, as well as on YouTube, where you'll reach even more people. So again, contact me at ian at corpsecreekpublishing.com and get your ad going today. All right, we are back. Now, according to McVeigh, he told various individuals that he was leaving Buffalo for parts unknown. He told some that he had jobs at various military installations. And at least according to a jailhouse informant, McVeigh stated that he had been given a call in late 1992 by his handler who this informant referred to as the Major, letting him know that he needed to get his affairs in order and be prepared to go far in the field for a few months. Again, according to this individual, at this time, McVeigh was grilled extensively on right-wing ideology as well as the various movers and shakers within various organizations. At some point in December of 1992, this is coming from Terry Nichols, McVeigh visited him at the family farm in Michigan and informed him that he had been recruited while they were in the army to a top secret organization and that it was his job to carry out undercover missions. Whether or not Nichols believed this is unknown although he did state it after his trial in state court. McVeigh traveled the country, ostensibly following the gun circuit, making contacts with various organizations and individuals in the far-right movement, and using numerous 
different aliases, such as Steve Murphy, Robert Kling, Mike Havens, Mike Foley, Sergeant Mack, Sean Rivers, Joe Rivers, David Gilmore, Richard Mentan, Tim Tuttle, Tom Tuttle, Terry Tuttle, Jerry Tuttle, Tom Sneed, Tim Sneed, Tim McGuire, and a slew of others. This is important because McVeigh's transient lifestyle after he leaves Buffalo is difficult to track, but people have come forward in the years since the bombing to state that, hey, I knew this individual, and that wasn't the name I knew him by. It's also known that he would set up various posts office boxes throughout the country, one of which was under the Tuttle name. This is important because Stephen Colburn stated, if you'll remember, that he was instructed to contact a man in Arizona by the name of Tuttle. Although, according to the federal government, no one by this name has ever been found to be living. So it's a very good possibility that this Tuttle in question who Colburn was discussing was in fact McVeigh. In January of 93, McVeigh is known to have been at a gun show in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where he met Roger Moore, who I spoke of a few minutes ago. McVeigh was selling white power shirts and copies of the Turner Diaries. In conjunction to all of this going on, this is when the FBI and the ATF really began to investigate the Branch Davidians at Mount Carmel in Waco, Texas. It's known that they filed numerous affidavits for search warrants, the first of which was denied, that they further filed more. These with dubious, and I'll straight out say it, made up stories in order to get the federal judges to sign off on them. One of these claims being that there was a meth lab operating out at Mount Carmel. This was done under the guise that the Branch Davidians were a dangerous extremist organization that was also a cult. As stated, it's known that McVeigh was in Waco during the time of the siege, and that upon seeing what was going on, especially the conclusion which it stated he actually watched from a hotel television, it was at that point that he decided that the government needed to be knocked down a peg. Again, as I stated earlier, McVeigh's movements are hard to track. After he left Florida, he bounced around to various areas in the country, including Texas, Montana. I've read some accounts stating that he was in West Virginia a period of time, maybe in Montana for a brief spell. What is known that in 
April of 93, McVeigh was at a gun show in Tulsa, and it was at this point that he met residents of Elm City. One of these individuals that he met was a man by the name of Andy Strassmeyer. So, looking at the clock, I guess we are going to get in Elm some today. We'll start with Andreas Strassmeyer. Born May 17, 1959 in West Germany, Strasmeyer served in the German Army beginning in 1979, where he was for five years. Some reports indicate that he was actually part of German intelligence. In fact, a lot of reports indicate this. Now, if you look on Places like Wikipedia, they really glance over it. But if you look on actual news sites, it states that he was a member of the German intelligence or German security forces. After getting out of the military, Strasmeyer moved to the United States, specifically to Washington, D.C., where he stated that his goal was to get a job with the Department of Justice. Specifically, he wanted to work for the DEA. Now again, this is according to Strassmeyer. If you look online, though, you'll see that many believe that he was actually working for the German government and that the German government set up an operation with the U.S. intelligence agencies, namely to have Strassmeyer come over to the United States and infiltrate these organizations as Strassmeyer was known to ha already have right-wing leaning tendencies and beliefs. According to the official story from Strassmeyer, however, he was not able to get a job with the U.S. government Although it's important to note that he was aided in this by a former U.S. government employee who, at least according to Strasmeyer, and again, I have no way to verify this, was actually a CIA operative. After this, Strasmeyer moved to Houston, Texas in 86, where he started working as a salesman for a computer company. And it was at this point that Strasmeyer became involved with the American right-wing white power organizations, specifically in neo-Nazi organizations. Eventually, he gets in contact with people from Elm City, which is a basically a gated community in Adair County, Oklahoma, roughly 400 acres. The compound was founded in 1973 by Robert G. Miller, who was a Canadian immigrant and part of the American Christian Identity Movement. If you don't know what the American Christian Identity Movement is, I can't recall if I discussed it in other episodes. Basically, it's a movement that believes that Jesus was white and everything inside of the Bible was written specifically concerning the white race. Now, Elm City is a hotbed of 
white nationalist ideology and individuals. There aren't a lot of structures inside of it. It's known that there's a small sawmill and trucking company based out of it, and that this generally accounts for the cash flow that comes into this community. There's also a church where there are held daily, usually for about an hour, according to residents of Elm City. They do not want any outside or interaction other than in their business dealings, and that anyone who comes there with the expressed intent of committing or creating a conspiracy to commit crimes will either be expelled or the residents will defend themselves against such actions. It's thought that there are extensive bunkers and weapons storage facilities underneath Elm City. Really, during this period of time, we're talking the early to mid-90s, Elm City was like a hub for the white supremacist movement much as the Aryan Nations compound, I believe they were in West Virginia, I might be wrong on that, could have been Virginia, but their compound was also a hub for the white resistance movement's activities. One of the groups that's known to have operated out of, or not operated out of, used Elm City as a stopping off, for a period of time was more otherwise known as White Aryan Resistance, who I don't want to get into too much this week because I'd rather dedicate an entire episode to them and try and weave in their story with the story of McVeigh. But Elm City, again, like I said, it's central to, to a lot of white nationalist movements operations, it's also an important part of Timothy McVeigh's time on the road because he's known to have spent time there, and in fact, I believe it was in the days before the bombing, McVeigh made numerous phone calls to Elm City, with some stating that the individual that he spoke to was Strassmeyer. You're probably scratching your head going, why is it so important? Why, you know, why is Strassmeyer being talked about? Well, Strassmeyer was basically the head of security for Elm City, but he was also a very powerful and well-regarded individual within the white power movement during this period of time. And immediately after the bombing, he fled the United States back to Germany and was allowed to leave. His fleeing and being allowed to leave has given some credence to the idea that he was either an asset or an agent for both the German and the American governments, and that they allowed him to flee so that he would not be caught up in all of this. So after this fateful gun show in April of 93, McVeigh who had been there to ostensibly sell his own merchandise as well as help, 
Roger Moore and his girlfriend manned their own booth, went to stay with the family at an Arkansas ranch that they owned. Although, according to Moore, McVeigh was got was really annoying, eating all of their food and basically trying to take over the house while constantly pestering about reading the Turner Diaries. McVeigh ends up leaving after two days. Where he traveled to after this is kind of unknown, at least until the next month, which would be May of 1993, when McVeigh makes his way down to Kingman, Arizona. He stays there for pretty much the entire summer, living at first with Michael Fortier before renting a trailer for himself in June of that year. He worked briefly for a security company during this period of time and also experimented with marijuana and methamphetamine. It's also important to note that at this period of time, it is known, it's documented, that the name Tim Tuttle first appears. While in Kingman, McVeigh continued his activities of keeping in contact with members of the white power movement and militia movements, but also meeting new individuals in the movement through various people that he had already met. So he's really networking at this point, you know, talking to this person over here, talking to that person over there. It's probably a good call to make that at this period of time, McVeigh is starting to think about, you know, hey, I want to get back at the federal government in a big way. That is, if you believe that he wasn't, in fact, an informant or an agent for the government. Regardless, he's staying in contact with all these people, meeting new people. McVeigh would use... Kingman, Arizona, during the summer as a base of operations where he could travel from there to various gun shows, visit military installations, that kind of thing, while the wheels in his mind were churning. He also began running advertisements in various white power, power magazines offering the various things that he was selling, one of which was a military-style anti-tank launcher replica, along with a surplus rocket launcher. Upon investigation at a gun show in Phoenix, it was found that the man who had placed these ads was, in fact, McVeigh, and what he was selling was flare launchers and anti-ATF and FBI paraphernalia. It should be noted, though, that it was found later in the records that this individual who investigated McVeigh found that he was not, in fact, Tuttle. This is odd considering the fact that we know that McVeigh operated underneath this alias and it does give credence to the idea that he was, in fact, an operative for the federal government, and the possibility that 
Upon being approached by this individual, this individual's superiors were informed that they needed to let this particular case drop. In the fall of 1993, McVeigh attended the Soldier of Fortune magazine convention in Las Vegas, where he again helped Roger Moore sell his various wares as well as sold his own items. At this particular convention, both men stated that they had a heated argument as McVeigh overheard Moore talking with a customer who used the word patriot. After this, McVeigh chased after the man and had a conversation with him where it's surmised that the topic of Waco was brought up when McVeigh came back to the table. He informed Moore that he was going to take a lunch and promptly vanished for two hours. Now, according to Moore, he was enraged by this as he believed that McVeigh's rantings would cause trouble for him as he saw a law enforcement badge underneath the man's overcoat and suspected that the man was very probably a member of law enforcement and that McVeigh, in talking to the man about this, might draw heat to him. Both, neither man has contested the fact that this argument took place when McVeigh came back from lunch, and that their relationship soured greatly after this. An interesting thing, however, that I discovered while reading through various things is the idea that the man's use of the term patriot may in fact have been a code word and that McVeigh upon hearing this went to this two-hour lunch with the man either for a debriefing or to fill him in on what he had been up to in his efforts to infiltrate these various white power organizations. Still a third version of this story holds that this man was in actuality the unknown manger who was McVeigh's handler and that he had been discussing various things with the man that the major had stated that yes McVeigh had seen him at Waco but that he had not participated in any of the things that had taken place there. This version of events has it that McVeigh knew the man was lying and it was at this point that McVeigh decided that he absolutely had to strike back at the federal government because he knew now that his handler and those in charge were running a scam. Some accounts have it that McVeigh traveled to Colorado after leaving this gun show. Others that he did not go there. It is known that McVeigh did go to Colorado at some point, just not when exactly and how many times. Remember, there were a number of paramilitary organizations active in Colorado, specifically in the Boulder area, and it's known that McVeigh had a mailbox there. It's also known that during the fall of 1993, he went and visited with Terry Nichols again. McVeigh stayed with Nichols until January, much as he did with Kingman, Arizona, McVeigh used Nichols' home as his base camp while he went out to various 
functions, and gun shows throughout the country. It's suspected that during this period where he stayed in Michigan up until January of 1994, that McVeigh actually set, started to set in concrete his plans for the bombing, and that McNichols was a big part of this. Nichols' brother, James, stated that during this stay with them, McVeigh began to talk about how he was given a secret shot while in the army that had caused him to develop the Gulf War Syndrome. This was backed up by other individuals throughout the country who stated that McVeigh had told them similar stories and that he had repeatedly gone to the VA hospital in Buffalo, New York, and in a few other areas complaining of various aches and pains that, according to these stories, McVeigh said came from this shot. According to Roger Moore, he encountered McVeigh once more at a gun show in Knob Creek, Kentucky during the first week of October, although McVeigh seemed to pretty much ignore Moore and instead focused on speaking with Moore's girlfriend. On October 11th of 1993, McVeigh got a traffic ticket for passing over a double yellow line. He was just about four or five miles away from Elm City. Now, according to one of the theories out there, that it was during this period of time in October when the basis for the conspiracy to bomb the Mura building was really put into play, and that it was decided during these meetings that they would work in separate independent cells towards their goal of both financing and constructing the explosive. And again, this is an important aspect because McVeigh had to have gotten the finances for all of this from somewhere. It couldn't just have come from his sales of various merchandise at gun shows. We're going to get into this more next episode, but there were a number of bank robberies that started around this time and continued leading up to the Oklahoma City bombing with individuals involved that were known to McVeigh. I was mistaken. I had it wrong in my notes. It was actually the Aryan Republican Army, not the white Aryan resistance that was involved in these. The ARA and WAR are very similar. Um, we're going to be talking about them in the next episode pretty extensively because it's known that some of the money from their robberies went to, to McVeigh, and it's also known that McVeigh took part in some of their robberies. That right there throws mud in the eye of this idea that McVeigh was, you know, this lone wolf operative, or that just himself and Terry Nichols were the masterminds and perpetrators of this entire thing. We are going to leave this story here until next week. 
I thank you for listening. Again, if you would like to help support the show, a couple ways you can do it. You can go to tinyurl.com backslash DC Patreon. Sign up to become a Patreon member for as little as $2 a month. Or go to corpsecreekpublishing.com. Click on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes. That's not your bag. Go to wherever it is you find your favorite podcasts. Leave a five-star review. Subscribe to the show. Share it on social media. Until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.